leaning into you as we listen and as we respond to your teaching today. And I ask this in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. No way. <clears throat> Let me say something about this Friday's Faith and Work um, seminar, this one-day seminar. What you may not know is the lineup of the speakers for this event are just absolutely incredible. Uh, Daryl Bach is one of the finest New Testament scholars around. His massive works on Luke and Acts are just incredible. I met with Daryl about a month ago. I've known Daryl for years. He's an amazing guy. Scott Ray, who will also be speaking as an old friend of mine, he's one of the leading apologists in the country. Wonderful guy. David Kim, who leads uh, with Tim Keller, or at Tim Keller's church, the whole Faith and Work initiative is just outstanding when he lectures. Uh, you've heard about some of the other plays. I want you to know that this is an amazing lineup. Don't ignore it. Uh, do whatever you can. Quit your job, whatever, to join us on Friday. All right? Now, let me begin this way. One of the things that I just love about Christianity is how realistic it is. So, for example, the Bible is straightforward about this enormous problem of suffering and evil. There's no denial in God's word. There's no pretending it doesn't exist. There's never any teaching, and this is misunderstood, that if you have faith, then you will live a problem-free life. The Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches the opposite. If you have faith, you can expect difficulties, adversity, and turmoil. Uh, furthermore, when we come to the Bible, while we don't understand what our problems mean always, or, or why things are happening to us, we always know what our problems don't mean. They do not mean that God doesn't care. Because that's why he sent his son to die on the cross. For evil, for injustice, for our sin. Now as we're moving our way through the book of Galatians, we see this realism again relative to the ups and downs of the Christian experience. I mean, why is it that Christians can be hypocrites, can do such bad things, preposterous things, evil things? Why is it that Christians can be focused on themselves rather than focused on God? Why is it that they can walk by faith rather than walk by sight? And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, the reason for that is that there is this battle, there is this conflict going on in the heart of each and every follower of Christ, each and every Christian. And it's a conflict between the flesh and the spirit, between um, our old nature and our new nature. So look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. We'll put it up on the screen. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in what? What does it say? They are in conflict. They are in battle with each other. The battleground is your heart, so that you are not to do whatever your heart wants you to do. 
So the bad, the hypocrisy, the walking by faith rather than walking by sight is all because we capitulate to the flesh, because we ignore this battle. We underestimate the, the, the seriousness of it. You see, Christianity is not like a cult here. It's realistic. A cult comes along and says, you do this, you do that, you take this pill, you follow our teachings strictly, and your problems will go away. Christianity says, no way, life's not like that. The Christian life isn't like that. As a matter of fact, the Christian life is a fight. You put to death, you crucify Paul's language, the flesh, and you walk in step with the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit. And then you will overcome, not be overcome by the problems that are certainly going to come your way. Now today, we come to the last verse in chapter 5 and the first 10 verses in Galatians chapter 6. And we're moving here to a very practical session of God's Word. And here Paul gives us six characteristics, six of them, describing what a, a life that is being changed by the Spirit looks like. What a life where the flesh is being overcome and walking in step with the Spirit is increasing, what does that actually look like? So let's begin in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, that would be all Christians, should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is love. If anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to the, please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers." So we're going to go through these six one by one. I want you to be aware I'm going to spend a little more time on the first two. So let's start with characteristic number one. This is back in the last verse of chapter five. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that people who live in light of the gospel consistently throttle their pride. You consistently throttle your pride. Now there's a good form of pride, right? I get asked this a lot. Is pride always evil? And the answer is no. When I say to Ryan, my son, Ryan, I'm proud of you, that's a good form of pride. We bump into this in chapter 6 and verse 4, used in another sense. But the word conceit here 
is a highly negative word. In the Greek, it's a compound word that fascinatingly means glory empty. Glory starved. Glory void. Now, I mention this because this is counterintuitive. When we tend to think of pride, we think it's an overinflated view of yourself. It's an overconfidence. But this word, glory emptied, tells us that another way to look at pride is that pride is a deep, profound inner insecurity rooted in an absence of a sense of significance that, that causes you Uh, to continually try to prove your worth by drawing attention to yourself. And what Paul is saying is we're proud because we're glory-starved, glory-empty. Now, what's interesting is if you look at verse 26 a little more closely, what you discover in the words that follow is that this empty glory, this conceit, manifests itself in two different ways. Two different ways. First of all, in feelings of superiority, which causes you to look down on others, to be hard on others, and to provoke others. So instead of seeing the people around you as brilliant, with enormous gifts to bring, And I long for you to see the people around you as brilliant. We tend to see the people around us as a quarter too low. You know, not that sharp. And so we're hard on them. We're short with them. We provoke them because we're angry. That's the feelings of superiority side. It's provoking But on the other hand, what Paul is doing in this term envy is telling us there's also feelings of inferiority going on in the heart. Where you are consumed with your weaknesses, you can't get past your failures, you feel so guilty and on and on. And what does that do? It causes you to look up to people rather than down to people, but to look up to people in the sense that you envy them. You're often embittered toward them. Why, why do they live this way? Uh, look at them. I know, I know them. So what I want you to understand is superiority on the one hand, inferiority on the other are two different forms of conceit, according to verse 26. And both of them make you self-absorbed. Both of them keep you from loving and serving and giving to other people. You see, just like King Saul in the Old Testament, conceit means you're glory-starved. So let's take the superiority side. We have a great example of this in the Old Testament book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, we bump into a king, a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the entire empire of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar gets so consumed with himself so arrogant that he attributes everything in his kingdom to his own work, his own might, his own majesty. And Neb doesn't realize it, but he's about to have a really bad day. And God steps in and takes everything away. He doesn't kill him, but he takes his entire empire away. 
And he reduces Nebuchadnezzar to an animal-like existence to humble him. As the proverb says, pride goes before a fall. Now that's the superiority side. Nebuchadnezzar is an illustration. On the inferiority side, these feelings of inferiority, this sense of inadequacy, we have a illustration of this in the Old Testament as early as Genesis chapter 4 where Cain kills Abel his own brother out of envy out of a sense of inadequacy look at how God has blessed Cain so there's feelings of inferiority and superiority going on because we're glory starved and so the question we need to ask is how, how do we crucify the flesh? How, how do you know you're walking in step with the Spirit? How, how do you understand that? And Paul is saying in verse 26, when you're throttling your conceit, your pride, <laughs> and, and, and you're changing. You see, there's nothing in your life that is going to work until you are killing your hunger for your own glory and you are replacing it with the hunger for God's glory. God's majesty. This is Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 where the great apostle Paul says, I boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now I've memorized that verse, I I mull over that verse in my own life. I, I use that verse for self-talk talk when I, I'm tempted to pride. And, and the way I paraphrase it is, um, Rob, you boast in the hope of the glory of God, not Rob. Because I want to be about God's glory, not my glory. But conceit means we're glory-starved and everything in us is pining, aspiring, desiring. All the arrows point to us. Let me go on. Characteristic number two. You regularly take on other people's burdens. This is chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. But I want to say something before we get into some of the particulars. If we read verses 1 and 2 closely, we discover there is no such thing as a private faith for a Christian. Walking by the Spirit does not mean private mystical experiences that cause us to withdraw from people, to withdraw from the church, to withdraw from the world. We serve a public Savior who lived a public life and died a public death and calls us to live publicly, to live public relationship-oriented lives. There's no such thing as a private faith. Now, we see this in verses 1 and 2 manifest itself in two different ways. First, the ministry of truth, that's verse 1. Second, the ministry of tears, that's verse 2. Now, let's start with verse 1 in this ministry of truth because what we discover here in this first verse is a particular form of the ministry of truth. 
and it's restoring. The word means recalibrate. Resetting, resetting a bone. It's you restore, you reset, you recalibrate another believer who's caught in sin. Now, Paul is not saying you go around for sniffing for other Christians' failures, okay? Oh my, I got to go talk to this person about that. Did you see what they wore? I got to talk to them. No, no, no. Uh, we're talking about sin, and actually the word caught doesn't even allow us to do this because the word caught here refers to someone who is trapped in repeated sin. In other words, they've been snared. They're stuck. So caught kind of narrows what's going on here for us. And what this means is you become aware of this and you gently and humbly Go to that person and say, hey, I could be wrong about this. But let me tell you what I'm aware of. Let me tell you what I hear. Let me tell you what I'm seeing. And I'd like to talk to you about this. And I'd like to help you overcome this. Because frankly, this just can't continue. It's a ministry of truth. In verse 2, it's a ministry of tears. It's these first words of carrying other people's burdens, carrying burdens, bearing other people's burdens. Now, what in the world does that mean? That means you feel what other people feel, you suffer what other people suffer, you shoulder what other people shoulder. Have you ever had an experience where you've been with a friend or, or somebody in the church, somebody you know, and they've just been hammered? Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. And you go and you sit with them and you spend a couple hours, maybe at a Starbucks or in, in, in somebody's home, and you listen and you listen. At the end of those couple of hours, uh, your friend who's bleeding says to you, man, thanks, that helped. I feel better. The burden is lighter. Why? Why can they say that? Because you felt what they felt. You've suffered what they've suffered. You've shouldered what they've shouldered. And even though you may have listened, and just primarily listened, I, I, I should say, because of you, that load, that burden feels lighter. A ministry of tears always, always involves a ministry of presence. And if somebody around you, somebody you care about, is hurting Err on the side of engagement. Err on the side of a ministry of presence. Go. Get with them. Meet with them. Now here's the deal. Now I think this is so fascinating. This isn't original with me. Most of us <laughs> tend to be better at one of these than the other. Either the ministry of truth or the ministry of tears. Uh, uh, so some of us are more direct, uh, others are more delicate, some of us are truth-oriented, others are relationship-oriented and compassion and, and mercy-oriented. It's our temperament, it's just the way we are. But interestingly, Jesus Christ was both, both here. So Jesus knew how to speak to someone who was caught in a sin without them feeling condemned. And Jesus knew how to come alongside someone who was carrying an impossible burden 
and yet never ever avoided reality. You see, you will know. Now follow me in this. I had a couple of people ask me this after the last service. You will know you are growing in the gospel. You're crucifying your flesh. You're keeping in step with the Spirit. When both sides, ministry of truth, ministry of tears, are growing in your life. Why? Because one side is natural for you, and the other side is supernatural. It's not something you're good at. It's something the Holy Spirit does in your life. And when you see both at work, a ministry of truth and a ministry of of tears characterizing the landscape of your life, then you know you're growing in the gospel because there's something supernatural going on to shore up an area uh, that is not your deal. Third, the third characteristic here emerges from verses 3, 4, and 5, and that is we carry our own load. Or let me say it this way. You accept your life as an assignment from God. Now, I want you, oh, do I want you to understand this. And so I'm going to focus on verse 5. Notice the word load in verse 5. It's a small load, like a backpack type of load. In contrast to burden in verse 2, which is an enormous load, an immovable load, a dark, difficult load. So the point is, verse 5 is telling us that God has given us each different lives. Uh, different difficulties, different opportunities, different talents, uh, uh, different gifts, and very different set of circumstances, different families of origin, and on and on and on. So, now this is verse 4, look at verse 4, so we don't compare ourselves to others. But we carry our own load. We accept God's assignments for our own life. Good assignments, sometimes very difficult assignments. And we say to ourselves, this is an assignment from God, I will carry the load. I mean, think about Job. Think about Joseph. Think about Isaiah. Think about Jeremiah. Enormous loads, yet they they carried them. Isn't this one of the things that Uh, causes us to look at the Old Testament prophet Jonah and say, the guy was whacked out. I mean, Jonah, in effect, said to God, sorry, God, I'm not going to do what you're calling me to do. I'm not going to preach to these foul Ninevites. Uh, Sorry, God, um, I'm not going to love them. I'm not going to hang with them. I'm not going to engage with them. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go sit under this tree, this bush, and I'm just going to pout. And he did. God had said go, Jonah had said no. Jonah refused to carry his load, his assignment from God. And so I think demonstrating a sense of humor, God orchestrated a garbage truck for a pickup in the form of a whale. And Jonah, I'm not going to let you go on this one. Now here's the deal. If you, I, I want you to understand the, the, the relationship of verse 4 and verse 5 because what we learn in verse 4 is comparison 
makes accepting God's assignments uber difficult. Well, they're not going through this. Why am I going through this? So I want to tell you a story and end it a little differently than I, I've told you before. When it became clear that my first wife, Carol, was going to die because of cancer and that God was going to promote her rather than heal her and that she was going to die in a matter of a couple of weeks or a matter of days, I knew my older daughters understood that, but my 11-year-old son didn't. So when that immediately became clear, I grabbed Ryan and I took him to Portillo's, which was by the hospital where we were at that time. And I sat down and said, hey, Ryan, I am so sorry to tell you this, but your mother is not going to make it. And she'd been battling cancer for a long time, and so he sort of got that. And the very first words out of this little 11-year-old's mouth were, well, Dad, why is my mom dying and not any of my friend's moms? Yeah, ouch. I mean, how do you answer that? And you, you realize as a parent, and I did at that moment, that this is a highly teachable moment and there's all sorts of ways I could fall off this cliff. So I, I gave a form of an answer in my own words that's rooted in verse 5. I said, Ryan, we can't understand the why. We can't understand exactly uh, what this means. But we do know God is, loves us. And God is so good, he gave his son to die for us. And sometimes God gives us very difficult assignments. And we have to say, yes, sir. Even though we don't understand. And even though it hurts like crazy. And what I was telling my 11-year-old is Ryan, you need to carry your load. And sometimes God gives us good things, and sometimes he give us, gives us excruciatingly crazy, awful things. But when I've told this story before, I haven't added this piece because of this context. And what was going on in my little guy's life was comparison. Hey, Dad, what about them? And what I want you to understand is if you're going to accept the difficulties that God has sovereignly assigns to you in your life, you will destroy yourself if you compare yourself to others. Comparison destroys. It kills. So we bear our load. And we do it joyfully because it's from the hand of God. And now, 11, where are we? 11, 12 years later, Ryan is thriving spiritually. Now let me go on, number four. You know you're growing in the gospel when you're generous with your church. Look at verse six. We don't anticipate this here. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. What Paul is saying is don't be consumers, be contributors. Not because it's a, you're paying for a service, but because you're family. You're the family of God. 
It's the word share, and the word underneath share is the Greek word koinonia. It means this mutual love, this mutual reciprocity. It means you step into each other's life, and you give and you receive. And what, it's what we see, this koinonia is what we see in the best of marriages and the best of friendships, and it's what to care, is to characterize the local church because we're family. Now, generosity is a dominant theme in the Bible. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that it's here. Of Jesus' 38 parables, 16 deal with money and possessions. There are 500 verses in the Bible on prayer, 500 verses on faith, over 2,000 on money and possessions. But as I've thought about this and others have spoken into this, I have become increasingly convinced that the reason we're not generous isn't because we're greedy. Now, there certainly is some of that. It's fundamentally because we're fearful. In our hearts of hearts, we really don't believe that God will take care of us, that God will provide for us. So what is generosity? Generosity is an act of defiance against unbelief. Generosity is an act of faith where you say, Jesus is sovereign over every square inch of the universe, every square inch, and he's sovereign over every square inch of my life. I will trust him. I will share. Now let me go on. Fifth, you always, always watch what you sow. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, we all know if you sow flower seeds, you're not going to get a tomato plant, right? And if you and I turn the good things in our, our life, our, our assets, our our jobs, our appearance, our family, our kids, if we turn these good things into ultimate things, what the Apostle Paul is saying is we will reap destruction. We've made them idols. Uh, isn't this the problem with sexual immorality and pornography? I mean, we, we insanely think, man, uh, this is going to make me feel better. This is going to liberate me. This is going to do this. This is going to be freeing. And it's actually ensla enslaving because it reduces our capacity for love. And it turns us into a narcissist of the night. I mean, you tell me who's happier. A young guy who's a salesman, he's traveling, he's in a hotel, not a very nice hotel, and he's, but he's writing a love letter to his wife. You tell me, is he happy or is it the guy who just lost another marriage because of his chronic adultery and now is that night prowling uh, from one bar to another looking for his next victim? Who's more happy? You students, who's more happy? 
a student that gives in to what everybody else is doing, whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, sex, and, and becomes very uh, calloused along the way, uh, in, in many cases confused, even confused about gender? Or the student that says, man, Jesus Christ has died for me. I love to stand up to G- for Jesus in my school. And as a matter of fact, I have taken to heart, now look at the last sentence in Galatians 5, verse 17. The student says, but I understand I will not do whatever my heart wants to do. Well, what students have here? You sow conceit, what do you reap? You reap a provoking spirit. Uh, you reap envy. Sin, Paul is saying in these two verses, destroys the fabric of your life just like acid destroys your flesh. Just like acid. So the warning here is real, but the promise is out of this world. The promise is eternal life. Now finally, and I'll end with this, characteristic number six. You know you're growing in the gospel when you never, ever give up in seeking the flourishing of others. Paul says, do not grow worried. Do not stop. What Paul is saying is understand your life, and I want you to get this. Understand your life in Jesus Christ is a continual sacrifice. That God has called you to bind yourself to people who will never reciprocate. God has called you to refuse certain comforts and pleasures because you're a servant. God has called you to experience wounds and scars because you will be misunderstood. You will not be appreciated. You will be rejected. God has called you to live on less because you're a koinonia type of person, because you're generous. But, and now I'm done. We cannot, we cannot, we have to understand, we cannot do this on our own. This isn't suck it up and these things six will flow. The whole point of the book of Galatians is we walk by faith, not by works. We fix our eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews says. We look to him, we live in light of the gospel. And when we understand Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' sufferings, it enables us to live a life of continual sacrifice, a life of repeated suffering. I I mean, think about the pain Jesus went through. As a matter of fact, it it was so extreme what he would experience on the cross that before he ever got there, just thinking about it caused him to sweat drops of blood. And when he was on the cross... And, and very cognizant of his rejection, his complete lack of value and esteem on the part of everybody around him. What does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, wipe him out. Jesus says, Father, forgive him. Forgive him. They don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. And then as Jesus gives up his life, At the end of his crucifixion, we have three of the most beautiful words in the entire universe come out of his mouth. It is finished. I have died to pay 
for the sins of the people who believe in me. I have died for sin. I've died for your sin. I've died for your sin. I've died for your sin. It is finished. So you walk by faith, not by works. You are completely and totally forgiven. There's no feelings of superiority or inferiority. And when we get this, when we get Jesus' sacrifice, the extent of his sufferings, when we see the gospel, when we live by faith, then we engage with others. Then we light up the world. And it's the spirit of the living God in us. Let's pray. So, Father, would you bless us? Would you continue to speak to us through your word that we might see you and know you and we praise you, we honor you, we exalt you for all you have given us in Jesus Christ. Amen.